Again, good to see you all here. A number of people are at the conference. Others are traveling. Tomorrow is a day uh, set aside here in our country to honor those who gave their life in defense of our country. And so there will be many activities of this kind throughout the country and, and here locally as well. The, the holiday has been expanded a little bit in practice over the years as a time of remembrance of all uh, uh, loved ones who have, who have passed on. And so you, you've, you've seen people out, uh, as I'm driving around the, the country for work, all the cemeteries, even those remote ones out in the country, the mowed. You know, and the grass is nice, and maybe, and there's people there putting flowers and, and so forth on the graves of their family members. So hopefully we'll have a chance maybe to, to get up to uh, the cemetery near the farm uh, when we go there today and uh, take a look at that. So Memorial Day and other memorials like this are an opportunity to honor uh those who have passed. Right now in Uvalde, Texas, there's a, a makeshift memorial that the people are bringing flowers and other kinds of gifts to in, in memory of, of these 20, 21 people, mostly little children who were killed recently there. The word honor that is from the Greek word is has to do with with price or value. So when we honor someone, we are we are saying that they 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 are of high value. They're precious. They're dear. And the word honor is a prominent word in chapter five that we have just kind of moved through in in First Timothy. You can open your Bible to First Timothy there. We're going to move into chapter 6 today. But honor is, is prescribed in Paul's letter to Timothy, these brief six chapters, five times he talks about honor. And interestingly enough, all translated from the same Greek word as well. In chapter 1, verse 17, he says, and in a, in a prayer of benediction, Now to the King Eternal immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So, we give honor to God. When you think about that. That's different, maybe, certainly, than, than honoring a person, but certainly God deserves honor, doesn't he? Uh, we are to esteem him of high value and, and reverence. And, and the, the word honor also, of course, implies respect, great respect. 
So when we show honor to a person, we honor someone at a birthday party. Okay? There's an example of that. There are many different uh, ways and places in our life that we show honor to people. And, and of course, when it comes to the scripture, if there's one commandment, you remember, it is honor your father and mother. Okay? So it's a showing a, a respect uh, to that, to your parents, and regarding them as precious. Now, if that is easy to do for you, praise God for that. But I, but I know people who have, have parents who weren't good people. Uh, maybe a, a mother who's a drug addict or, or a drunkard who, who was violent and physically abusive, and now you live apart from them. You know, what is, what is then a believer, a young believer to do with this, this commandment, honor your father and mother? Parents are not even people I can get close to. So it's, it can be difficult. But if you're honoring someone, despite any, any differences or other difficulties, that you can love, praise God for that. And it's great to have good parents when you honor your father and mother. The, the second mention of honor, of course, is in chapter 5, where we've, we've been for a couple of times, and it's honoring widows. And, and particularly a widow who has shown herself to be of exemplary Christian character and reputation over the decades, over time. And if this widow is uh, has no family to take care of her in, in, in her old age, then the church ought to pick her up. They ought to take care of her. Okay? So honoring widows. Then we move on in that same chapter. And he's talking about honoring elders. These, these men who lead the church, but particularly, he's, he wants to reference those who are doing a good job in, in working hard in their uh, oversight, their pastoring of the church. And especially, he says, those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And then, this, this one may be a surprise to you, Chapter 6, honoring slave owners. What? Yeah, okay, we're going to get to that one. So we'll say more about that uh, then. Um, and back to, uh, I wanted to point out a couple of things with regard to uh, honoring elders. Look at, uh, when you look at that passage up there, it says, elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Now, that's the only place that expression occurs in the New Testament, double honor. But let's uh, turn back in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's a similar expression there. 1 Corinthians 12. And then in this chapter, he's talked about spiritual gifts, but he's talked about the members of the assembly, the members of of the local church, the body of Christ, and we're, we're all different. We come in different ages, sizes, uh, maturity, gifts and abilities, and just all kinds of all kinds of differences there are. But he says everyone is important. And the, there's there's a couple of verses here I want to especially point out to you that you need to really give some long term thought to. All right, the first one is 1 Corinthians 12, 18. 
And it says, very brief, but it says this. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. Whoa. So God's placed you here, just as he desired. You need to be asking, for what purpose? What, what's my part in this? You just, God has just told you, you have one. I put you there on purpose. So what's your part? And then he's going on to talk about those who, who are maybe the least prominent or noticeable members in a, in a congregation. And he says about them in verse, uh, he says in verse 22 that every member is necessary. Now, if we just read that God put you there as he desired, obviously he's got something in mind, and you do have a purpose, and you're necessary. So those members of the body which we deem less honorable, these are, they're, they're not very prominent, not very noticeable, okay? Uh, anybody who, who stands up here and leads singing, he's going to be seen. You stand up here and preach something, you're going to be seen. But what about all the people in the, in the whole family of God here? All right? Not everybody's seen in, uh, as much or the same way. So those we deem less honorable or less visible, less prominent, on these we bestow more abundant honor. There's the word that I'm looking for. T- Timothy, we talked about double honor. And here he says more abundant honor. In Timothy, he's talking about elders who work hard at preaching and teaching. Here he's talking about people you hardly ever noticed. More abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body. Remember, he placed everyone where he desired, he said. He so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked it. So no one in the body of Christ, no one in the assembly can say, I got no purpose, I don't mean nothing. That is not true. In Romans 12, if you're still in Corinthians, just go back one book. To Romans 12, in verse 10, he says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. Where have we heard this concept of giving preference? Okay, in honor. Well, Philippians 2 is one, and it tells us to do that to one another. And it tells us that the highest example of that is when Christ gave us preference. He went to the cross, he who knew no sin, and gave himself for us. Boy, that's preference, all right. Okay. So there's honor. Then the, the, the fourth one here, slave owners. So we'll, we'll, we'll just begin to, we'll read this passage here, the first opening verses of chapter 6. So he says, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. 
so that the name of God in our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. In 1 Corinthians 7, go back to that book again. It has something to say about slaves and slavery. Now, maybe we could just preference that here. Slavery at the time of the New Testament was prevalent all over the world. And, and pers- people became slaves in, in, uh, in several ways. One of the ways was a country would conquer a neighboring country and they would take slaves. And this, and this was uh, a, a national or ethnic type of slavery. It was not racial. Uh, most slaves at the writing of the New Testament, for example, were white Europeans. And then a person could become a slave because your family was poor and they sold their kids. Well, but of course that happened. What was the alternative? Starvation? Where would you be better? Okay. And then a person could sell himself as a slave. Why would he do that? Well, remember, there is no welfare system that's going to feed you, clothe you, or house you, or give you anything for you if you become impoverished. And so you might look at this and say, you know, this person over here with a good-sized business or a farm, I will go and sell myself. He will provide me housing, food, and, you know, and the basic necessities of life. Okay? So I will not starve to death. That's good. In, in Judaism, that was written into the law, that a person could do this, but he must be set free in ten years. Now, at the end of that time, if he decided, I really like where I'm living, I like my master, we get along great, he treats me well, I want to stay here. He would have the option of staying there indefinitely then. Okay. At the time that, that this is written, 60 to 70 percent of the people of the Roman Empire were in some form of indentured uh, uh, servitude or slavery. They may, they may be living on their own, but owe their master so many hours of work a day before they could ever go and work for themselves. This was common. So the, so the, the early church often met in the evening on the first day of the week, which we call Sunday, not the morning like our tradition is. They met in the evening because it was a normal work day until well into the oh, 300s AD. And so people would have to work. They get they go to work at sunrise at 6 p.m. They get off at sunset at 6 and they go to work at 6 a.m., get off at 6 p.m. And now they can gather with other believers in the church. The church would meet in the evening. So, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul, again writing, says this about 
slavery in verse 21. And, he, and he's, he's been talking about to, to people about where were you at or what, what station or place in life were you when you came to know the Lord, when you were saved. So he says, so he's, he's talked about men and women, husbands and wives and so forth. But now he's talking to slaves. He says, were you called a, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it, but if you are able also to become free, rather do that. So freedom is to be preferred, because then you would have the freedom to serve Christ and to make these choices. While a slave, you're going to have to do whatever you're told to do, and depending on who your master is and what liberties you might have or not have, you may be very restricted. Okay? For he who called, he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Perhaps we don't often think of ourselves in that way. A slave of Jesus Christ? That's how Paul, the great apostle, always described himself. A bond servant of Jesus Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, if you're free, don't get into slavery. <laughs> because you want, to, you want to be able to serve Christ. Right? So that was slavery. <clears throat> At the time that uh, he's writing here to Timothy. Now, this passage and some others in the New Testament have been a problem historically in America. Back in the early uh, years of our, of our country when slavery was common in a good portion of the, of the nation, and this was argued vociferously even when the country finally came together as a nation, um, a lot of southern slave owners justified slavery by saying the scripture doesn't condemn it. They were right, but the nature of being brothers and sisters in Christ mitigates against slavery. And so slavery, if brought, if brought under the, the microscope of the gospel, the pressure of, of, of salvation would have had to go by itself. But there's something more important. What, you might ask, could be more important than the freedom to do what you want, when you want to, and where you want to? What's more important than that? We all enjoy that. We do that. We even maybe sometimes grumble a little bit if our employer requires something of us when we'd rather do something else. Or he wants you to work Saturday and the holiday when you'd really rather be out fixing fence or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, but that being said, we love our freedom. I want to do what I want, when I want, where I want, how I want. So I don't want anybody telling me what to do, right? So what could be more important than that? Well, take a look at what it said there. He said, show your masters all honor. <clears throat> 
so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. So the person of God and who he is and the, the doctrine of the Christian faith, namely the gospel, is more important than my personal freedom. Don't lose that. The call of Christ in the gospel, the call of Christ on you, is more important than your personal freedom to do what you want, when you want, where you want, and how you want. Do you recognize that? The reputation of Jesus Christ, whom we have named. We are Christians. I belong to Christ. So the reputation of Christ is on me before the world. That is more important than my own interests, my own freedom. That is why he tells these slaves to behave in this way. Hey, behave honorably. So certainly would say to anyone who, who is, uh, you know, whether you're running your own business or whether you are an employee or even a military service member, boy, they know about honor. Behave honorably in whatever realm you live and work. Behave honorably because you reflect on the name of God and the person of Christ. Now, some might have thought, well, if my master's a Christian, we're brothers in Christ. I don't need to show him any more regard than anybody else. No, not so fast here. Don't be disrespectful of them just because they're your brothers and you think you can get away with it, but serve them all the more because the person you're serving that you're doing good for, that you're, you're working for, is a fellow brother. Isn't that better than helping a stranger? Or an unbeliever? Teach and preach these principles. Now he said something like that in the, in, in the, in the chapter 4, verse 11, where he said, prescribe and teach these things. So he wants to emphasize this. Teach and preach these principles. Now, what is going on in uh, Ephesus where Paul has left Timothy with regard to uh, slaves and so forth? Well, as we begin the next section here, he says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness... And he has a number of things to say about such a, a false teacher. And one of, one of the uh, writers that I read, he said what, was, what may have been going on here is that there were those who were, who were teaching those who were slaves, and that could have been most of the congregation. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to be a slave anymore. You can, you can rebel against your master, and you can leave that. And if your master is a fellow Christian and a member of this congregation, you, you can just you know, blow it all off. And it's creating a lot of turmoil. 
That may have been what was happening here. Remember, when, when, uh, in the, when we opened this letter a long time ago, we read, Paul says to Timothy in the very first chapter, opening verses, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And he went on about that. So there were some people who were really making a mess of things there. And Timothy was left behind. I'll leave you behind to straighten this out. Boy, that was a job. So here's, listen to what he says about these people. If anyone is, is teaching a different doctrine, he says he is, and he says something about the teacher and then about um, the, the, the effect on those who would listen to this or follow. So first on the teacher, he says, he says he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And I don't know if you've ever known someone like that. We, we had a, I had a, a, a co-worker, a fellow driver who was then promoted to actually to be one of my bosses. Uh, and he didn't do this after he got promoted. I was amazed that he could control himself. But he, he loved to, there were certain people that he knew that he could say something to or start a conversation. He could really push their buttons and get them going. And so he would stir it up and then watch all the, all the noise. And uh, so there were certain individuals he could really fire up. Now, he would do that this to me, too. He would say something, you know, with regard to the Christian faith. And, and while he was a godless man, he was an expert on Christianity to hear him speak. Uh, and he was an expert on anything. There wasn't anything he wasn't an expert on. <laughs> he, he, he ranked among the top three most arrogant men I've ever met in my life. But after he got promoted, I got along with him great. <laughs> but I learned early on, you can't have a conversation with this man, so just don't take the bait and get involved. But there was another driver, his name was Joe. And to, to the day Joe left and moved to Arizona, Nate could push his buttons and fire him up. And, and pretty soon there'd be shouting and, and, and hollering going on. So... The, uh, the boss finally came into work one day and there were notices on the time clock, on the door, here and there. No talk about sex, politics, or religion. <laughs> I, I don't know that that was all necessary. But people got tired of the arguing. Now, I don't recall in my life experience anyone in, in the church who liked to stir things up. But you may have met someone like that. And certainly we don't want to be that way. Uh, he says that the, the one who would teach these kind of things, he's conceited, he's full of himself. He doesn't, he lacks understanding, he doesn't even know what, you know, what he claims to be an expert on. And he has a Morbid interest in controversy. Just likes to stir things up. 
and he has a depraved mind in the end of verse 5, and deprived of the truth. But those who would, who would be affected by this, what does it produce in people? Well, before we read that list again, look at chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, and this is what Paul says here. He says in verse 5 of chapter 1, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We always, in all areas of life, look at the results of what we do. We hope those results are good. We look at the results of our childbearing. and say, okay, this is what I produced. How's it looking? And, and uh, you know, as, and as we go along uh, through that, but in, in areas of work and everything, we want to look at the results. But this can be true in our personal life. And what are the results of what I'm doing? What kind of effect is it having on me and on other people? In, in our, in our uh, service for Christ in the assembly, in our teaching and so forth, we've got to ask, what's the results? If the results aren't good, we need to take a look at ourselves and what we're doing. But here's what, the, what, the, what these things resulted in. Not love from a pure heart, not unity, but there's arguing, disputes. It provokes envy and strife and abusive language. You know, that's loud arguing and calling people names. Evil suspicions. You know, you just have a bad opinion of of, of the other person and you're just thinking bad things about them. And constant friction. Now, if you think of that list... Would you want any of that going on in your home with you and your children? No, no, boy, we work against that. (laughs) Well, to be honest, once in a while we get a little of this, get a little friction. But we don't want envy and strife and abusive language. No. I like... Kenneth Weiss expanded translation of this passage. Here's how he wrote it. If, as is the case, anyone is teaching things of a different nature and opposed to the things just mentioned, and does not give his assent to wholesome words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the teaching which is according to a godly piety, he is in a beclouded and stupid state of mind, which condition is caused by pride, not doing any concentrated or reflective thinking, even in one instance, but exercising a morbid curiosity about inquiries and quarrels about words, from which come envy, strife, speech injurious to one another's good name, malicious suspicions, protracted and wearing discussions of men corrupted in mind, who have diminished themselves, disinherited themselves, excuse me, of the truth, thinking that godly piety is a way of gain. Now, in that verse, uh, verse 5, these people suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They, they, I have a marginal note here that it is the appearance of godly religion. They, they, they want to appear godly, but what they're doing is not. And the results of what they're doing are really bad. But he says, godliness 
Genuine godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Wow, think about that. Now, contentment is not the opposite of ambition. It's not opposed to working hard to uh, improve yourself, whether it be college or some kind of training where you're getting a degree in something. It's not in trying to, to uh, better your, your income and your financial state. No, contentment isn't about that. But are you satisfied with God's dealing with you right now, today, where you are with what you have? If you're not, nothing you gain tomorrow is going to help. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, the most content person I ever knew in my life was my dad. And he set a high bar. <laughs> that in a lot of things. In verse 7 he says, We have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we had food and covering, with these we shall be content. Are you? Maybe, maybe, maybe you will prosper tomorrow and you'll have more, but maybe not. Are you at peace with the Lord with what you have today? Can you give thanks? Yeah, that's important. Then he talks about those who are not content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now this is a verse that is often misquoted uh, and more commonly by by those who who are not believers, they, you've you've heard said this way: money's a root of all evil. Well, no, the Bible never says that. It says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And and when we look at these words here, uh, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. We probably know people who've experienced that. Um, a number of years ago, um, in the 80s, so that's ancient history to use it. <laughs> I was living in Oregon, and there was on the ballot to have a state lottery. And when I lived in Montana, they they had uh, they voted on one. I got to vote against the lottery twice, and they passed anyway. But, uh, okay, so there's also a lottery is brought in in Oregon. And I remember being at the, at the grocery store one day, and there was a 
a couple in the checkout line, and they were they were retired. They were on Social Security. And talking, and the she was the wife was buying some lottery tickets. And when the lottery first began, she said, "You know, we were spending a hundred dollars a week on lottery tickets. Now we're cutting back to only twenty dollars a week." Oh boy. The higher the income level, the fewer lottery tickets are purchased. The vast majority of lottery tickets are purchased by people who would be uh, less than lower middle class. Why? I want to get rich quick. I don't want to work 50 years for it. I want it now. And so they, they spend money they can't afford on gambling. Gambling is a good example of uh, love of money. No. The moral problem with gambling is it appeals to greed and envy and it invites you to profit without any work on the loss of someone else. So for, before anyone can win in gambling, 10,000 or a million have to lose. That's a, the moral problem. Do you have family members who love money, want to get rich, just have all kinds of problems? I do. Oh, kinds of sad things happen. But he says in verse 10, some have wandered away from the faith. He's talking about believers. He knows people, Paul does, that are coming to his mind. And they've, they've wandered away from the faith in search of riches. And they experience Ruin and destruction, a snare of the devil. Now, he talks about to the rich again later on in the passage, and I'll just jump ahead here, and we'll leave the uh, this middle section in here for for Michael next time. But in verse 17, he says, "Instruct those who are rich." in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, if someone has wealth uh, whether it has come to you through years of hard work. So, uh, an example. One of Brenda's brothers started a little business inside of college in a garage. You know, that attached a house. And that expanded and grew and grew and grew. And over, what, 40, 50 years, he has a company that's worth millions. And substantial reward for the the uh, private family stock that the 
companies represent. So, it's not wrong to be rich, to be successful. Uh, a couple of things about him. Uh, he lives in the same house he's lived in for decades. I don't know how long. But some people knew him said, Don, you got lots of money. Build yourself a new house, a big house. Why do I want to do that? This house is adequate for, my, for our needs, him and his wife. We're comfortable here. We don't need that. But it's, you're in a middle class neighborhood here. You know? Move up. <laughs> Moving on up. <laughs> no, he wasn't interested in that. And uh, he's been generous with his, with his money. And the, the verses to follow, he says, Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Because one thing is certain, when the undertaker gets the billionaire and, and the homeless man, they go out together with the same amount. They leave it all behind. Now, if a person has since laid it ahead, sent it on ahead by, how's that? Doing good, rich in good works, generous, ready to share. Then he'll have wealth in heaven. But there are people whom we know, I'm sure, who had hardly any money throughout their life who will be rich in heaven. And there will be millionaires who will be paupers. Jesus said, it's really hard for a rich man to even get into heaven. So godliness with contentment is great gain, he says. I, I, want, to, I want to leave you with another illustration of maybe wrong thinking with regard to this. Um, over the years, with our discipleship camp, it's coming up in August, we have seen that uh, we've had somewhere between 50% and even up to 75% of those who come are girls. Where are the guys? Well, it's happened to me many times. I asked someone, Will you come to discipleship camp? And the response is the same. I can't. I have to work. Now, that may be true. But most of the time I'm convinced they're telling them a story that is not true. The truth, the more accurate statement would be, I choose to do this instead of that. And that, that, that may be fine. But if you are in a habit of choosing to pursue your own interests and don't put aside a place for seeking spiritual things and seeking the Lord, that is going to lead you to spiritual ruin and poverty, spiritual poverty. So I like to challenge people who respond that way to me. Well, okay, maybe you do, but 
Do you really have to work or do you just choose to instead of pursuing this? Now, when uh, my firstborn, the 16, finished the school year, she said to me, Dad, I need to get a job and start saving for college. Now, no dad is opposed to that. Uh, I didn't have a lot of money. I wasn't going to be putting a bill for a large college under anything. But an invitation came up. Come and be a counselor at this camp. And I said, Joyce, you go do that. You can make money later. She finished with that. Another invitation came up. Come go on this wilderness backpack trip with this camp and, you know, maybe be a counselor on another one. Joyce, you go do that. We'll get money later. She comes back from that, and here's an invitation from the Assembly of Stevensville. We were in Helena, Montana. Then. Uh, we got a Mexico trip planned for two weeks. So Joyce, go, go to Mexico. You can make money later. When she gets back from that, half the summer is gone and she hasn't earned a dollar for college. She went to Emmaus for two and a half years at $10,000 a semester. Debt free. Now, I didn't have money, but the Lord did provide. She did work you know, years before college. She did save money. Uh, both my, All of my girls got academic scholarships after they were in school because they're all smarter than I am. <clears throat> but what I'm saying is the person who says to you, I cannot make time or place for the things of the Lord because I have to work, have they asked God for what they need? Well, that may be a simple thing, but many times we haven't done it. So, seek the Lord and ask him to provide for you. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for uh, the Lord Jesus. And to know him through the gospel, to, to believe in him, to belong to him, uh, is a source of true contentment. God, help us to be content with your dealings with us and to ask you for, for the things that we need and that we desire. In Jesus' name, amen. You do. To the airport. You do. Are you going to get any lunch? I mean, not here. Not here.